Well, thank you very much. It's really, I've been looking forward to this and an honor and uh, a pleasure. Uh, I want to also extend uh, my thanks to the Ordans, and there's no better way, I think, of remembering a uh, uh, parent, uh, grandparent, and, you know, with, with a lecture. And it's a wonderful way to remember a dear one. And uh, um, I, I, of course, appreciate the opportunity to teach in, in their memory. Uh, as uh, Rabbi Silber uh, pointed out, it's for me a very special pleasure to be here because uh, uh, my father, Allah Shalom, actually taught at Drisha in his last years. This was the favorite, uh, really, of all the teaching he did in those last years. He loved it here. My daughter, uh, Leah, studied at Drisha last summer and loved it here. My niece, I actually have three connections. My niece, Leora, some years ago studied at Drisha and loved it. So I've been jealous for all of the, these years. And uh, uh, it's really, therefore, special satisfaction and joy uh, to have received this invitation. And nobody knows better than I do uh, the wonderful work that Drisha accomplishes uh, in our American at Jewish community, and I even see some former students here. So uh, it's wonderful that uh, um, uh, really what is going on. Now, um, my aim this evening is not so much to give a formal lecture so much as uh, really a kind of shiur, a learning session with texts, and I hope everybody has the text, on the question of how Jews in early America just after the revolution, began to confront the implications of freedom and democracy for Jewish religious life. Uh, really, uh, the challenge that those Jews faced uh, was the challenge that Jews have so often faced when confronting alien cultures, the challenge of balancing between old and new, between Jewish tradition and uh, the surrounding culture. It's, of course, the challenge Jews faced uh, in the time of the Maccabees, so it's appropriate to uh, uh, the week of Hanukkah, uh, uh, and it's in many ways the challenge uh, that we Jews have long uh, faced. Uh, in America. My goal, uh, let me assure you, is not uh, to resolve that challenge, uh, uh, but rather to illuminate one chapter in what I see really as a kind of perennial tension between, if you will, Hellenism and Hebraism. This happens to be a little-known chapter, and I, I would say I think these documents are not uh, widely known. Uh, uh, the chapter, really, that takes place in the years immediately following uh, the American uh, Revolution. And the question that Jews face in the immediate years following the Revolution is whether Judaism as they knew it could be reconciled with new American values. Yes, freedom and democracy and individual rights. Uh, you have a traditional structure, what we call the synagogue community that had for decades uh, united Jews around one synagogue. In the colonial period, every Jewish community that existed, Savannah, Charleston, Philadelphia, New York, Newport, had exactly one synagogue. In 
New York, it would have been Sheriff Israel, uh, and that shul bound all of the Jews together, and that idea certainly promoted group survival, but now in the post-revolutionary era, um, the question is, uh, there are new realities, new political realities, new cultural realities, new religious realities. There's freedom, there's democracy. What's going to happen to this synagogue community structure that had lasted from 1654 to the revolution now uh, that the revolution is behind us? So fine, the revolution is ended. We have uh, an American constitution. And the amazing thing is, almost at once, we see every one of America's synagogues writing a constitution. Now, those who remember American history back then know it's a period of great constitution writing. Every state writes a constitution. And Jews felt, well, we should write one too. Actually, of course, they never wrote constitutions before. Previously, the, the legal documents that Jews used, the governing documents, had a Hebrew term, askamot or haskamot, agreements, covenants. But now, in an era when constitution writing is all the rage, fascinatingly, um, we see the American term uh, come into play, and synagogues write what they call synagogue constitutions. And the new documents break from the old Sephardic model. Um, uh, if you look at colonial, uh, if, you, if you get tired and you want to go to sleep, read the old colonial constitutions. One of my uh, books is on constitutional documents of American Jews with the late Professor Daniel Ellis. I was not a bestseller and probably not as exciting as some of the books on the bestseller list, but if you read the colonial ones, you'll see um, uh, how old-style uh, synagogue constitutions read, and now we see something new. All of the new constitutions have Republican rhetoric, and at least on paper, uh, they deal uh, with freedom and democracy. Now, I had Rahmanas, I'm going to give you one uh, constitution. In, in my book on American Judaism that some of you know, I analyzed the 1790 constitution of Sheriff Israel uh, down the block, which is actually the very first synagogue constitution uh, in history, and, and actually one of the few even today, to have a Bill of Rights. If you belong to a shul, go home and find out whether it has a constitution with a Bill of Rights. Uh, but in 1790, uh, Sherit Israel did have one. Uh, but instead of looking at that document, which uh, is better known, I thought to look at a very unusual uh, synagogue constitution, uh, a very radical one in some ways, and that is the uh, a 1789 constitution of a brand new uh, community that's Beth Shalom in Richmond, uh, Virginia. And that should be uh, a document uh, one in, in your list here on uh, page one. And since I've been, I, I had a talk before this, so I've been talking a lot. Uh, somebody, can I get somebody to read the first lines here? Good, yeah, please. Place, the 
Right, they, they, uh, they, they, they actually wrote it in Hebrew letters, which is why it's in italics. So, we the subscribers, is that the way traditional Jewish documents begin? What do we think? What begin? What are they thinking of? What's echoing? We the people, of course. And it's really uh, a fabulous example of how the surrounding culture suddenly influences the way Jews write and think the term is interesting. There is great sensitivity to the word Jewish. Those of you who remember George Washington's letter to the Jews of Newport uh, and their letter to him, uh, they, they call themselves children of the stock of Abraham. Imagine if we called their religion by that name. Um, uh, but in this group, they call themselves the Israelite uh, religion. Jews had the idea that if they got rid of the word Jewish and used a word like Hebrew or Israelite or Abrahamic, then all of anti-Semitism would disappear. It's an old Jewish idea. If you change the name, you change your luck. Unfortunately, it didn't work at all. And um, by the late 19th century, when Jews were shocked by uh, by heightened anti-Semitism, the very word anti-Semitism is invented in the 1870s, first in Germany, then brought to America, we see a big return to Jewish language. Young Men's Hebrew Association comes Jewish Community Center. The uh, uh, Hebrew veterans become the Jewish war veterans, and, and so on and so forth. And that's a, a return to Jewish language, much as we've seen in Air Day uh, in the former Soviet Union, a big return to the language uh, that, that was negative. Yezhidi was not a, a word used in polite society uh, once, and then Jews reclaimed. In any case, Israelite religion, uh, they, um, uh, and, and they call uh, it Beth Shalom. Um, as a general rule, whenever, I'm not saying an absolute rule, whenever you see a synagogue with the name Shalom, a uh, peace, you can be sure there was the absence of peace. Often, uh, it's either a breakaway, or in this case, you have people from different traditions uh, hoping that they can all get together. Uh, those of you who know Boston, the first synagogue is Ohave Shalom, and they did love peace, but after about two years, uh, the German Jews secede and make what today is known as Temple Israel, and then Adath Israel, uh, they couldn't get along. Abet Shalom is a sign of, uh, you know, the the issue is, can Jews make peace in the colonial era? Synagogue names are messianic. She'erit Yisrael, Nitre Yisrael, Mikveh Yisrael, and Nidudeh Yisrael, and so on. In, um, in the 19th century, they're peace-related. Okay. Now, um, uh, let's just... Qu if I keep going, we will never get... Uh, all right. Uh, let me read a few things here. Number one, every free man residing in this city... That's a kind of interesting um, uh, idea, again, taken from democracy. Now, free man, this is Virginia, we know who it excludes. But on the other hand, there are no more distinctions among Jews. In colonial era, there were definite distinctions between the wealthy 
and those who were not wealthy. And the wealthy controlled, uh, they were known as Yechidim. They were exceptional. They ruled the place. Now, every free man uh, 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 is, is equal. And it says every free man residing, you know, three months, uh, 21 years, shall be a Yachid. That's a revolution. A Yachid meant somebody special once upon a time. Now we are democratizing. Everybody is special. Um, and, and entitled to every right and privilege uh, of, uh, of the same. Um, now, in number two, they tell us uh, uh, there's going to be a meeting and you need a plurality of votes. And, and like uh, everywhere, they're electing different offices. But then there is an amazing line. The parnas, meaning the president and assistants, shall not be connected in family or in partnership, in trade, in order to preserve an equal and independent representation. I'm not sure there's ever been a synagogue constitution until this time in Jewish history that had such a line in it. Uh, and if you look at the reality, just go and look at the history of Sheirit Yisrael, Everybody was related to one another. All of the upper-level families um, were interrelated. Um, and the notion of equal and independent representation, you know, this is a new democratic idea in Congress, not a traditional uh, Jewish governance idea, and fascinating how we see it coming in. Uh, I'll skip over three. You can read that. What I did want you to see is what it says about no rules, no rules or regulations be considered as binding in a congregation. It is read two Shabbat or holidays separately in the synagogue. That's normal. And then it says, should any member object to the same, it must be by a letter to the Parnas within 24 hours after the last publication, who should be obliged to call a meeting of all of the members in total. In other words, even one dissenter can bring about a whole meeting of the Kehillah to discuss matters. Now, admittedly, it was small. I, I mean, if my university worked that way, we'd never get anything done. And I do not recommend it to any shul of yours that if even one member disagrees, there's got to be a meeting of the whole Kehillah. But what they're interested in is minority rights. They don't want uh, the minority to be lauded over by the majority and therefore even one member in a small con congregation can bring people uh, in. I won't have time uh, to read the rest, but these are uh, new ideas and the Constitution reminds us that um, uh, these Jews are being influenced by the world around them. Now, uh, the pace and extent of Constitution, if you have questions, I'm uh, if, as long as they're directly germane to a document, please feel free to uh, raise them. Yeah. Every free man, right. So, yes, uh, oh, yes, it certainly meant only Jews. Women hadn't been invented yet, and therefore all of these documents, the same as uh, Turo Synagogue, George Washington begins, gentlemen. So that's proof women have been invented. The, um, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, no, but, and of course the Constitution doesn't include uh, women, but uh, it, this is the South, and you'll find many constitutions that in different subtle ways restrict blacks. And there were blacks. There were uh, black uh, who, who were 
children of miscegenation, or what would later be called of, 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 of relations between slave owners and slaves. They were not halachically Jewish, but often the man wanted them to be brought up as Jewish. Um, anyone who reads the history of Suriname sees that most of these congregations did not give equality uh, to, to, to African Americans. Uh, to African slaves, and that, that's really true through the Civil War in Southern constitutions. You see it even more if you read the documents of the New Orleans congregation, New Orleans being a place where you not only had black slaves, but you had so-called free women of color. Quite a few Jews had, uh, shall we say, uh, intimate friendships with free women of color, and all of those people are restricted uh, from having a place in the world of the synagogue. Not the prettiest story uh, from our perspective, but so it is, and that's what that means. In any case, um, the pace and, and extent of constitutional reforms differs from congregation to congregation, and, and just like the constitutions differ from state to state, and, um, and you can even see back and forth. So, for example, in Charleston, there's a quite democratic shul constitution immediately after the revolution, and then they sort of take away most of those rights, and the, um, uh, and the board um, uh, reserves many more rights to themselves in, in, in later constitutions. But what you see, and this is what I wanted you to see, is the effort to reconstruct the synagogue polity uh, in accordance with new American norms. We've had a revolution. We've got to bring some of those values into the world of the synagogue. You want to harmonize what has up to now been a rather hierarchic synagogue community and bring it into, uh, uh, bring it into a much more democratic American uh, state or ethos. But, and that's not so easy because it quickly becomes clear the democracy and ideas of personal, individual freedom clash with certain basic traditions of the synagogue. A Moment magazine I saw this, I think it was uh, this issue, has a whole question of Judaism and democracy and is democracy a Jewish value? That in a sense uh, is what they're talking about and you see it in case studies. So let's actually move to as we say, Ma'asesha a case that actually happened. Philadelphia, 1782, before the Constitution. A Bavarian immigrant, a hero of the American Revolution, he's actually, and this is the connection, one of the very first Jews in Richmond. His name was Jacob I. Cohen, a man of quite substantial uh, learning. Uh, he arrives in town in Philadelphia, because they'd opened up a big store in Richmond, and uh, this was before the internet, so you couldn't uh, 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 order it from Amazon, he had to come to Philadelphia and on a buying trip. Uh, the truth of the matter is, it's perfectly clear, he's also looking around for a wife, and it's about time since he was 38 years old. Um, he actually arrives in town and uh, is rapidly meets one of his Virginia Lanzmen, you may have heard the name, his name was James Madison, and uh, James Madison gets him to lend him 50 pounds, and, um, and, and soon our friend Cohen applies, since he's going to be staying a while, 
to become a member of Mikveh Israel Congregation. He has a good name. Uh, he's made some money. Mikveh Israel is the synagogue in Philadelphia. They are very happy to allow him in. Not long afterwards, he meets and falls in love with a recently widowed woman of his own age. Uh, her name is Esther Mordecai. And, and she, uh, her husband had died, uh, it happened frequently in those days, had died young, leaving her impoverished uh, with three children. One assumes everybody is thrilled. Now she's got someone to take care of her children. He doesn't have to be single anymore. Providential match, except that there's a problem. And the problem is Esther Mordecai was a convert to Judaism. Her original name was Esther Whitlock. How exactly she converted and where is, is not a problem that we can absolutely answer. There are two different answers. But everybody accepts that she is a legal convert and she's been Jewish and all the rest. But those of you who know your halacha know that a Kohen exactly can't marry a Gioret. And now we have a problem. Of course, had she been a divorcee, uh, it would have been the same problem. Uh, it is prohibited. Now, once upon a time, that would have been the end of the story. I mean, you know, it's, we don't know. It's, we don't know. You know, very sad. It seemed providential, but you're a Cohen. She's, um, she's a Gioret. Sorry, uh, it can't happen. Um, but now, uh, uh, they, they begin to rebel a little bit. Uh, why should he, our, our friend Cohen wonders, why should he be denied the right to marry a convert to Judaism just because he had an ancestor who was descended from Aaron or Cohen? Uh, in other words, liberty and freedom. His personal liberty, he's fallen in love, and it's good for her and good for him, seems in conflict with Jewish law. And it's perfectly clear, if you turn to the minutes of the uh, congregation on page 2, uh, that um, they're unhappy about it. Uh, they don't know what to do um, uh, exactly. And we know that because uh, they say, whenever you read in, in, in um, minutes, a great while was spent in debating and hearing the din, you can be sure... Uh, that they're going back and forth. Um, uh, you know, even today, I don't know if it's the Drisha has such minutes, but you read in minutes, you know, a long debate took place, a long discussion took place. You know, there's plenty of machlokes. And the fact that there's machlokes is important because the halacha is very clear. But nevertheless, uh, there. And Messrs. Da Costa and Mordecai proved by the din that it is contrary to our law uh, to suffer uh, such a marriage. And then the question is, uh, what uh, should they do? And uh, the congregation um, uh, forbids him to marry, Mr. forbids the Chazan. The Chazan would have been the person, there were no rabbis in America till 1840. The Chazan of Mikveh Israel would have traditionally been the one to celebrate the wedding. The congregation says no. Yes. Isn't it strange that it doesn't say here why she can't marry her? Why can't she be a widow? She can marry a widow. 
Well, uh, yeah, I know. I mean, it's true uh, that they um, uh, don't. It is possible, uh, it says according to, contrary to our law, it is possible he's dropped out a lot here, if you see, and it may be that if one went back to Mikveh Israel's records, which unfortunately are not publicly available, uh, you would find a longer discussion of the problem. But the problem is perfectly clear. Um, anyway, uh, they forbid the Chazan not only from performing the marriage, but as would still be the case sometimes today when something happens that you are not proud of, one of your members intermarries or so on, many shuls will not announce the wedding in shul, and that's just what they do. They will not mention his name in the synagogue. Now, um, they, and they write the Chazan a letter exactly telling him this, and they are unanimous. All the five uh, people here who run the shul agree. But then there is a further question um, uh, that, uh, th- that, that the wedding is contrary to the din, and all who are present at the same are liable to the same punishment. Are we going to put in cheyrem? everyone who goes to this wedding which shouldn't take place. And uh, what happens? Uh, that's interesting. That's, um, uh, I mean, it's of course future wife, although it is possible. I've wondered about it. It is possible that uh, they know that, see, uh, you'll see in a minute, that, that it's already happened and that they're not happy about it. That is certainly possible. In any case, what happens? Are they going to put everyone in attendance? No. Uh, they are not the, the motion lost, which is interesting. And instead, they, uh, they, they do what we would do today. They, they, um, uh, they put off setting, they put off the question of what punishment will be occurred and the law will be published on Tuesday next, but many, many, many Tuesdays have passed from that day to this, and apparently uh, they never returned to the question. But what actually happened, and if you turn over the page, you will see exactly what happened, because amazingly, and I actually think the fact that the Ketubah survives tells us that there were people who were very interested in making sure that this act of defiance would be preserved, this is the Ketubah. And let's take a look at it. Um, uh, You will see that she's called an Armalta Gioret, so she's a widow, and she's a convert, and everything is written. In other words, it is perfectly clear it's named Yaakov Rabbi Yoshua HaKohen. It's a Kohen, and he's marrying a widow and a Gioret with her name, Esther Bas Avraham, Avraham because she is a convert. And otherwise we have, I won't go through it because it's a perfectly normal uh, Ketubah, but um, uh, this is a public flouting of Jewish law and of the rules of the synagogue by people who apparently believed that Jewish law didn't comport with their freedom to marry, that somehow or other they believed in a free country uh, 
given all of these circumstances, I guess they would have said, um, uh, uh, where there is a, a will, there ought to be a rabbinic way. They felt uh, uh, that there ought to be a way for this providential marriage to take place, and indeed, they carried it out. Now, if any of you... Yeah? Um, yes, I believe that you have had civil uh, marriage. The reason you have, so you're right, they could have had it. That, I mean, this is kind of what you do in modern Israel. You'd have civil marriage and not, that, that's not apparently what they want to do. I'm pretty sure every, marriage is state by state in the United States still today. And I don't want, it's a good, I could check it, but most states did have civil marriage, not for the reasons people imagine, but because, uh, uh, many, especially in New England, Christians argued, especially Puritans, that wedding was n- that marriage was not a sacrament, and therefore they didn't want the churches involved in weddings. They said it should be a state matter and not a religious one. Uh, later, we built on that in other ways, but the original civil marriage came from people who were angry at the Church of England for having taken something that they thought was a civil matter and making it a sacramental religious matter. But I don't know for sure uh, if it's so in, um, in uh, Philadelphia. But I do want you to see, it's hard to read, uh, but boy, I wouldn't mind owning this ketubah. Take a look at the signatories uh, on that page. They're in English. Um, it's not the best... Uh, it's not the best uh, uh, anybody see any that you recognize? Uh, can you make them out? It's not the best copy. Uh, anybody see any that you uh, that you see? Not so easy I, uh, there. So I'll read them to you. The first in English is Mordechai Sheftel. Mordechai Sheftel is a very from a very very distinguished Savannah Jewish family. He's come to Savannah with the first residence. By the way, there are still Sheftels in Savannah, some Jewish, some not Jewish, um, uh, from the original family. Uh, He is a revolutionary war hero, a very uh, distinguished man. The second signatory's name is Israel Jacobs, one of the oldest and most distinguished uh, residents, Jews of Philadelphia. His wife was born in Spain, Sipora Nunez. She had previously been married to the famous Chazan, who had died, Chazan Machado. And by the way, Sipora Nunez, his wife, still bore scars from the Inquisition. We don't, you know, you realize that as late as after the American Revolution, there were still Jews who, who had scars and, and the, the Inquisition was living memory because the Inquisition lasted a long time. Uh, That's Israel Jacobs, and I tell you all that history because you get a sense that he too was highly respected. And the third you've all heard of, Chaim Solomon, he paid for the synagogue. He he had given the challenge grant, which is what it was, uh, that allowed them to build Mikveh. Israel, he was by far its most distinguished um, member, any rabbi in this uh, audience would cringe to think that three such members disagreed with um, the leaders and with, with seemingly clear halacha, uh, but clearly they placed personal liberty above the dictates of Jewish law. Now, of course, they may have known, and I hope you know, that if the marriage takes place, 
this is a kosher wedding in retrospect, meaning the kiddushin are tofsin. It's valid in retrospect um, uh, if it uh, takes place. The children are not koanim, of course, but, uh, but the wedding, is, it's not like certain other weddings that are impossible. But the point is, notwithstanding the opposition of the leadership of the synagogue, notwithstanding all their threats, the couple is legally married, which is a real signal that the power of the congregation is beginning to wane and that other values outside of the halakha are beginning to have an impact on this community and those are values from this new democratic America. And, you know, and, and, and that's an important thing to know. They may have been right, they may have been wrong, that's for you to decide, but we can see in this episode uh, how suddenly um, uh, uh, individual rights and liberties and love and all of these Western values are coming smack against uh, the, the halacha. So now let's um, move on to uh, a next document, um, uh, which uh, is actually um, uh, one of uh, my, um, uh, my, my favorites. I've given it to you in English and also in the original. We certainly will not read it all. The rest is for homework. The, um, uh, I gave you the original because I thought you might enjoy. Those of you who know some Yiddish, this is Western Yiddish, uh, what used to be called Judeo-German, um, and, and it's rare. I also wanted you to see it because honestly, the English is a bit toned down from the Yiddish. I'll point out one or two. The original was in Yiddish, and whoever translated it cleaned it up a little bit uh, uh, in way. But what's the story? Um, this is one of the earliest chuvot. It's really not a chuvot, it's a she'ela. It's one of the earliest questions that we have that is sent to... Uh, a European Rav from America. Again, it's Mikveh Israel, and it's written by leaders of the congregation, two very learned men, Manuel Josephson of Germany, we, he actually had a small rabbinic library, and Joseph Karpolis of Prague. They are writing to Rabbi Shaul Halevi Löwenstam, who was the Ashkenazic chief rabbi of Amsterdam. Why do you think they wrote to Amsterdam and not London? What, what, what did we say? Maybe. Why? Maybe. There was a Sephardi chief in London. What, why might you, in the wake of the American Revolution, not have written to London? <laughs> okay. uh, so this is a sign that even though they once turned to London, and actually soon would again turn to London, which was the normal place to send questions, during this period, that's unthinkable, and so they write to Löwenstamm. Some of you will know he wrote the Binyan Ariel. He's, he's quite old, and they want his advice. Now, actually, well, often when you read questions, uh, they're not exactly posed in dispassionate way. Uh, the question for a historian is, we don't have the answer, but the question is more interesting from a historical point of view. They are battling with one of their most learned and contentious lay members. His name, I uh, didn't know his first from his last, his name was Mordechai Mordechai, um, uh, who was a native of Tells, 
there'll one day be a famous yeshiva in Tales, a reminder there were East European Jews in America at that time, not a lot, but uh, he's from Tells, Lithuania, and he thinks he knows Jewish law better than the leaders of the congregation. So let's again, uh, can I get somebody to uh, read for me? It's some, somebody who, no, can I get somebody? Yeah, please, okay. To his exalted and so on, yeah. Right, if you read the original, which is on page, uh, on, I think, page 7, uh, you'll see that the first two paragraphs are written in Hebrew, and they then switch to, uh, uh, to, to what we today call Western, um, uh, Western Yiddish. Note that they use this interesting phrase that you often find in rabbinic parlance for the new land, Midinot Hayam, uh, uh, is what uh, is what they call it, and they you know reinforce the idea, no learned people, and so on, and then they write. But let's see what the account is. You're doing a great job. Read us uh, this account. Yeah, the English reads Gentile man, the Yiddish reads Orel, the Horol is Nunim, which is not exactly uh, the same thing, but uh, um, uh, th 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 this is um, Orel uncircumcised that gave birth to bastards. Uh, um, this is toned down a little bit, uh, 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 but uh, Yiddish is an earthier language, perhaps. Um, um, Okay, uh, uh, the, the, um, uh, uh, we know, by the way, who these people are. This is Judith Hart and, um, and her unconverted husband. It's not at all clear that uh, you know, this was anything but a love match, notwithstanding the tshuva. The tradition uh, there was somewhat different. He was very dashing. Lieutenant James Pettigrew uh, is who we're talking about. And if you look up... Uh, uh, in, in Easton, there are good records about them. Easton is, still exists in Pennsylvania, good records about them. Okay, what happens? Keep going. So we get a sense, uh, um, apparently they fall in love, uh, they uh, have children in some mysterious way before they're married, uh, and they then have emerged, it's interesting what is pointed out, she doesn't convert. Now in Europe, that rarely happened. In most European states, uh, and certainly it was the law in Russia, you had to, the husband and wife had to be of the same religion. That was not true uh, generally in America. 
And we have many, many interfaith marriages uh, in the 18th, 19th century uh, where the Jewish side did not have to convert to Christianity, although as a rule, not an absolute rule, but often the children were brought up in the faith of... uh, uh, the the children were brought up non-Jewish, and especially if uh, this is um, an unusual case, it was much more common that it was the male who was more likely to go out and the female uh, would be non-Jewish than the case here where it is the female who's Jewish and therefore children are lachically Jewish and the male uh, being an outsider because men sowed wild oats in those days and women were well protected by their parents although not apparently uh, uh, well enough in Eastern. Uh, it was a revolutionary time. Okay. Um, uh, so, uh, what happens? Yeah, keep. Okay, this is dispassionate account of the proceedings. <laughs> and um, but, keep going, yeah. Yeah, it's a mistake. It should be Mordechai, Mordechai, but does, I mean, it's their mistake. Uh, he's misidentified it. It's too long to explain how I know that. It's okay. Yeah. Right, this was not uncommon uh, at that time. It's even known today that uh, it's usually disastrous, but you let the child decide between the religion of the mother and the religion uh, of the father. We know um, uh, many such uh, cases, a very famous case in the early 19th century is uh, the case of Moses Dropsy, who eventually uh, chooses... uh, Uh, his uh, father's uh, religion and converts to Judaism. He becomes very Orthodox Jew and there's a dropsy college and so on about it. It's the most curious, since we've done synagogue constitutions, most strangest law I've ever seen in a synagogue constitution relates to dropsy, which basically said no intermarried member can be a member of this congregation except for Aaron Dropsy, the father of Moses Dropsy, literally wrote in his name uh, 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 there. Uh, but in uh, this case, uh, you know, you get a sense. I want to see the next paragraph, and, and then, because that's the key, and then we'll uh, talk about it. Yeah. Thank you. 
Okay, so what's going on here is the power of individual personal liberty. Basically, our friend Rabbi Mordechai is taking the law into his own hands. He says, it's a free country. I can perform chuppah and kiddushin without any synagogue telling me what to do. You are, uh, you know, it's my right to do that, he's saying. And um, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the truth is, we don't, I, I see time is much, we don't have time to read the rest of it, uh, but uh, in addition to uh, this uh, act, at the very end of this long document, you'll see that he also performed uh, last rites, they say in the English. In other words, he buried in traditional way a man named Benjamin Clava, who is an intermarried Jew who identifies Jewishly. In other words, we, we're told he gave a vidui before his death and his non-Jewish wife carefully tended to him. But the shul, as a warning towards other people who might, uh, might intermarry, ordered that he be buried, quote, without ritual ablution, without shrouds, without funeral rites. And our friend Rab Mordechai uh, made sure that he had a full Jewish funeral. In other words, he went and personally gave him that funeral over the objections of the shul. And even worse, Mordechai defended his actions, insisting he knows Jewish law better uh, than the shul, and uh, uh, it's his right to do this. And they want to know what Rav Lervenstam says about it all. Now, as I say, even though we know Rav Lervenstam replied, uh, we don't actually have the copy of his reply. In other words, we're told that he replied. They had to hire someone to translate it. Maybe someday it'll turn up in an archive or be, be, um, be auctioned off on eBay. But for the moment, uh, here. Uh, for the moment, we don't uh, know what he. Um, uh, we don't know what he said, but the real question has much less to do with Jewish law. That's not really what they're asking about. They're asking about authority in a democratic age. So our friend, Rab Mordechai, maybe he's not our friend, uh, he's a kind of rebel. He's part of the revolutionary tradition. By the way, there are a lot of Protestant rebels of just his kind at the same time, challenging his religious superiors, claiming the right to interpret God's law as he understood it. I know Allah better than those Rabbonim do, says he, and I can carry it out as I see fit. Um, and can the shul really do anything about it? No. It's a free country. I mean, they can write to Rav Lervenstam, but the truth is, in Europe, a government might have been brought in, and very often governments would aid the shul on the theory, today you rebel against the shul, tomorrow you're just the kind of person who will rebel against the government, so uh, we'll put you in your place. But in America, that doesn't work anymore. Uh, the government can't do anything in this case. It's church-state separation. Yeah? 
I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Well, you're right. They could, uh, yeah, they could put him in Cherem. That's absolutely uh, true. Um, uh, what's the problem with Cherem? What could he do? We'll see. In fact, that's exactly eventually what happens in every community. If one shul puts you in Cherem, what are you likely to do? You're going to be able to make your own shul or another shul. It's much more difficult uh, than it once was. And harem is very rare, actually, even in the colonial period. It's a very good question. Uh, harem only works when the whole community agrees. When you don't have communal agreement, harem cannot work. It assumes a communal agreement. And infrequently in these cases, you didn't have it. Uh, and that was part of the problem. Uh, and indeed, it's still a problem. I mean, today, the average synagogue needs to win the consent of its members. It can't kind of force their consent. And, and uh, that's part of the challenge that we're seeing here at this moment of change. And, and uh, well, for a traditional shul that operated in a communal way, that's a huge challenge. Please, yeah. Um, no, really, we don't. All we, he's clearly an argumentative person. We have a few letters of his. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he's divorced twice, which probably tells you something about him, because uh, it wasn't common. Um, but I can't, uh, you know, aside from knowing he comes from tells, I'd love to know, you know, more about what he'd read and what he knew. But my guess is... When I say revolutionary fervor, my guess is he's read, as almost everyone in Philadelphia had read, revolutionary pamphlets, uh, which were uh, common. And uh, Bernard Balin showed a long time ago how many people were reading that kind of material. It was very cheap. Anyone could print it. And lots of people were reading this kind of material. And um, and, and, and we know it. There's a marvelous letter which relates, I, I don't know if she's specifically thinking of this, but it relates directly to your question. We have a marvelous letter that a, a woman named Rebecca Samuel writes back to her parents in Hamburg in 1791, just around this time. And she, what does she write? Here, she writes, anyone can do what he wants. There is no rabbi in all of America to excommunicate anyone. So you see, she had your idea, but can't be done. Uh, there are no rabbonim, and the whole thing doesn't work. But it's amazing that she is conscious of that difference. Under, uh, the, I take the letter to mean, look how different the world is in Philadelphia. Um, uh, uh, than it, I think she's not in Philadelphia yet, but uh, well, she would be. But it, how different it is, I think she's still in Virginia, than it was in, uh, in Hamburg. Um, now, later, if we move ahead, uh, we can see, I'm, I'm going to have to move ahead, uh, read the, some of this too, you can read the documents on your own, but a little later, generation later, you're still fighting individuals who believe that uh, freedom granted them the opportunity to define Jewish law as they saw fit. And this is now a series of issues on Kashrut. 1830 it flies to New York. The Shochet 
uh, of Sherith Israel, his name happens to have been Jacob Abrahams, decided to reject the congregation's terms of employment. He didn't think they were paying him enough, still happens today. And he had a great idea, I'm going to go out and sell kosher meat independently. Now, from the point of view of a synagogue, that's a direct and unprecedented challenge to their authority and what is kosher is a matter of great Jewish concern. And the congregation does a very traditional thing. They go to the New York Common Council, that's the antecedent of the city council, and uh, they probably tell them how many votes the Jewish community has, and presto, the Common Council passes a law that says, an ordinance, no butcher or other person shall hereafter expose for sale in the public markets any meat sealed as Jews' meat, which I take to be kosher meat, who shall not be engaged for that purpose by the trustees of the congregation, Sheriff Israel. This is very nice. They now have a legal monopoly, and once upon a time, that would have been the end of the story, except you probably would have given a big punishment to this dissident shochet as a lesson to everybody else. But suddenly, eight members of the congregation, the friends of Jacob Abrahams, they write a protest to, um, uh, to the common council. They say the ordinance impairs their civil rights, is an encroachment on their religious rights, um, a, a restriction to the general privileges to which we are entitled. You can uh, see uh, some of their document is, is on um, uh, the, la uh, the last page here. And, um, and they complain it's an infringement on the rights uh, of the people. Um, and so on and so on. It's amazing language. That's not Jewish language. That's democratic language. Freedom, liberty... Um, and uh, what happens? The truth is that the Common Council, discovering they're now involved in an internal Jewish dispute, who would have thunk Jews disagree? Um, but an internal Jewish dispute, some members one way, some members other way, they expunge their ordinance, meaning they pretend it never happened. The documents are at Sherith Israel, not at the Common Council. So they expunge the ordinance but, and wash their hands of the matter and what that means is that in New York, the whole authority of the congregation over kosher meat is ended. Now, it's a voluntary matter. Jews have the right to uh, select a shochet of their own. But, of course, the problem is, uh, you know, who's overseeing it? I mean, in a sense, this is the origin of kashrus problems that we're still dealing with today, and it really comes not long after the revolution as a challenge between the rights of the individual. Our friend Abraham says, a free country, I can sell kosher meat, and the shul that says, wait a minute, uh, we, we ought to be overseeing this, otherwise uh, uh, who knows what will happen. Uh, and the state washes its hands of the matter. Um, and a final example, um, which is even more remarkable because all of the other, most of the other examples are individuals. Here we actually have a whole community. 1826, there's a Jew named Joseph Ahrens, and he applies for membership in Mikveh Israel in Philadelphia. The board of the shul receives letters from a shul in Jamaica, and apparently another letter from England, telling us that this Joseph Ahrens is a mamzer. 
he is the product of an impermissible union uh, two generations earlier, in 1744. So he's Nebuch, uh, still suffering because his grandparents had a, uh, a, an impermissible union, and he is a mamzer. Um, uh, now, halacha, it's tragically, I mean, there are ways that happen, but halacha is uncompromising. I mean, it's a midoraita um, uh, on this issue. And therefore, these letters from England and Jamaica said, you've got to turn this guy down. He cannot be accepted in the congregation. But what happens? Uh, we'll let somebody read it, somebody dramatic. On the very last document, Jerry, read it, can you? Whereas, the last date, yeah, whereas... Listen to that language, not halacha. Yeah, keep going. So they accept him. And note the reason. Now, I want you to understand this is Mikveh Israel. It's a good Sephardic synagogue. We're not, you know, talking about uh, the reform movement, which doesn't really exist. Um, but it is actually a very interesting moment, 1826. 1826 is a, 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 is a moment when the world of American Judaism is really in the midst of defining change. Yes, if we were in England, we'd say it's a Humpty Dumpty moment. Humpty Dumpty is when uh, all the, you know, the, the established church falls and all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put the old religious situation back together again. And what's going on at this moment in several cities, New York, uh, Charleston, is multiple congregations have replaced one congregation. In other words, we've seen religious dissent and the right of dissatisfied members to secede and form new synagogues more conducive to their religious inclinations has been established. It's tentative, but the authority of the old single congregation has broken irretrievably so. So, what we see here um, is that American Judaism, in ways that I think couldn't have been imagined uh, 50 years earlier, is accommodating itself to freedom and democracy. Yes, so you have a Kohen who wants to marry a convert, a Jewish woman who wants to be married with chuppah and kiddushin to a non-Jew, an intermarried man who sought to be buried in a Jewish cemetery, a shochet who sought to go into business independently, and a mamzer who sought membership in a Jewish community, and suddenly it seems they can all make their wishes come true. And the question is, is this, which I'm sure is your question, is this a welcome sign of Judaism finding a way to accommodate individual rights and freedoms? Or is this an unwelcome sign of assimilation and of weakening bonds of halakha? And the answer is, you've got to decide that. What is clear from the documents is that henceforward, the, the, the maintenance of Judaism in America is clearly going to have to depend on persuasion, not 
coercion. Coercion isn't going to work under this new system. So as we approach Hanukkah, I told you we'd come back to Hanukkah, I promised. Next Motzei Shabbat, it's really worth thinking about the challenge of freedom to American Judaism. To what extent can we accommodate rebels and dissenters and freethinkers and independent spirits? How much elasticity is there in halakha when it comes to Western values? Freedom of the individual in our day, the rights of women, the rights of gays, new values. Now, what I take to be so wonderful here about Drisha is that it permits students to ask questions like these and it provides them with the tools to answer those questions knowledgeably and sensitively and in this way I think it reinforces one of the great lessons that we Jews have learned from our historical experience here in the United States which I have to say I think is different from in some ways from the story even of Hanukkah because there's no religious coercion in, in these cases, unlike the story of Hanukkah. What we see instead is a remarkable paradox with this, I'll leave you. Remarkable paradox, I think Drisha represents, and in some respects, the whole of the American Jewish experience represents. And that paradox, which I do think is in some respect reflected even in this document, is that those who challenge us frequently strengthen us. Religion can actually flourish under freedom. So thank you and happy Hanukkah and uh, I'm happy to take questions. All right. Uh, we have time for some questions. If there are questions, a free country. So uh, questions, dissent, Machloket, uh, it's part of our tradition. One and two, please. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, it's a good question. Uh, there are no rabbis till 1840 when uh, Abraham Rice, uh, the first ordained rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi, comes. And in the 1840s, we then see a series of rabbis. Uh, but you don't need, uh, you know, you can have a breakaway congregation. It even happens today. There are independent minyanim without uh, ordained rabbis. Of course, um, B'nai Jeshurun um, is, is established in 1825 by rebellious young people. It's still full of rebellious young people. Nothing has changed. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and in Charleston... Um, uh, there has been a secession, they're much more radical in Charleston from the main shul, which is Bethel Kim, and, and they call themselves the Reformed Society of Israelites for promoting true religion of Israel according to its freedom and, uh, and something else, a very long name, but uh, it's the Reformed Society of Israelites uh, uh, there. And in, in uh, Philadelphia, Rodef Sholem, again a Sholem name, a sure sign of Machlokas, uh, has been appointed, um, uh, has been established more for Ashkenazi Jews uh, from Mikveh Israel. So the synagogue community, by the Civil War, every major American Jewish community had at least two congregations, and bigger communities like New York had four or more. Uh, yeah, you were next, yeah. Mm-hmm. So forth. Uh, salespeople. 
It's a good. I mean, of course, it would be lovely to know more about the halachic argument. They certainly thought they knew it. You're absolutely right in the absence of rabbonim, um, but it doesn't mean that they were all completely ignorant. After all, to have written, they wrote a few lines in Hebrew and they wrote a long uh, business. Uh, so, I'm sure it contributed. Uh, but on the other hand, the interesting question is, why is there no rabbi? After all, they're not that poor. Uh, and if you look in the Caribbean, most of the Caribbean communities, at least at one time or another, had a rabbi. I would say two things. Number one, uh, because you had Jews from so many places, each one was afraid that the rabbi would impose somebody else's minhag. You know, together we can work it out. But the rav, who knows what he'll impose. So... I think A, they're a little afraid. B, unlike in many European settings, huge numbers of American churches did not have ministers or priests. There's, uh, partly because they didn't like them and partly because uh, uh, they didn't want them and partly because they couldn't get them. But the upshot of that, in, in American Judaism, I give a number in a marmacom and so on, um, the upshot of that is you are not embarrassed before your non-Jewish peers if you don't have an ordained rabbi. Whereas in England, the Jews bring an ordained rabbi very quickly because they are clearly ashamed and they want somebody who will stand opposite uh, the, the non-Jews. So those are the two factors, but it's really only beginning in the 1840s that we begin uh, to see rabbis, and, and there's a rabbinic shortage in America uh, for really quite a long time. Uh, and the quality of the rabbis is mixed, uh, obviously. And there are even a certain number of self-appointed rabbis. Those of you who read the forward know we've come full circle and now you can get, get smicha uh, on the internet very quickly and uh, become a rabbi in Florida. And it's just like what happened in the 19th century. Uh, please, in the back, yeah. It's fair. I, I, guess I'm, I guess I'm more impressed by the three people who signed the Ketubah. In other words, if he had just run out and gotten married, I think I would have you know, said that. And had he been a king and put to death anybody, you know, disagreed or, or so on. Uh, of course, Henry VIII sat and studied Talmud. I, I, we, when my wife and I went to a wonderful exhibit in London, it's amazing. He's sitting and studying all the ways that legitimate what he's doing and going through Ksubas and so on. Astonishing. Anyway, um, um, they, um, I guess because it's Chaim Solomon and, and, and Sheftel and they're so involved in the revolution that I do have a sense that the, the individualistic um, uh, values are behind it. Um, uh, but if you tell me that this is, uh, 
you know, a clash between human desire and halakha, you know, it could be interpreted uh, that way, although, I, as I say, it's those three names that, that, that strike me, but it's a very good question. Uh, yeah? Um, well, we don't actually know the answer to that. All I can tell you is eventually she dies um, and then he becomes president of the shul. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, um, uh, Chaim, I mean, uh, certainly Chaim Solomon is, uh, uh, you know, serious Jew. I mean, the interesting thing about Chaim Solomon is one of the, another tshuva deals in a way with, Chaim, mentions Chaim Solomon in a very positive way. Uh, the the Maaseh is as follows. Chaim Solomon, in the middle of the revolution, sent money to a poor relative his uncle in Europe. Of course, Ham Salman then dies, and it, it takes a long time. They didn't have Western Union to get the money to Europe. By the time the Shaliach brings the money, the poor relative has become rich. <laughs> the Shaliach asks the question whether he is obligated to give the man the money. And there is a long and interesting chuva. What's interesting about it is the praise it gives to Chaim Solomon. And I think it begins this notion that America is a place where, you know, poor people can get rich and become generous and talks about Hanadiv and all the rest of it. The end of the story, it's a very clever tshuva, is he says, yes, Shlucho Shalodom Kamosa, you must give him the money, but he's obligated to give the money to Tzedakah. And uh, because uh, it was not uh, anymore, uh, you know, given for that reason. Um, but I, uh, Chaim Solomon seems to have a, I mean, he builds a shul and he has a reputation. Obviously, we have mostly business documents of being a serious uh, person and, and so do all of these other folks. I mean, in other words, I could show you Hebrew documents that this guy Cohen writes. Indeed, if you go to the National Museum of American Jewish History, you'll see beautiful acrostics that he publishes for, for presidents and, uh, um, you know, these are not, uh, which suggests that they knew more than some people imagine they knew. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, they're torn in different uh, ways. I think I didn't bring you reform documents for that reason. That's what's so interesting here is these all take place within a halachic uh, Sephardic community um, uh, uh, there. Other? Uh, all right. Thanks very much. Thanks, John. It was a pleasure for yep. to have you here. Thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm delighted and really interested. You know, I think different, different than people normally uh, have a chance to see. And I, uh, I mean, I could have spent a lot more time, obviously, on each document. But I promised to end by age 15. And so 